Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Chicago Psychology Podcast. So that's how we went. So we, so I met uh, met with him at his house, met his his, his wonderful uh, wife Ellie, and and uh, we just had you know sitting at his office, and I explained to him what I wanted to do uh, in terms of writing, uh, and I wanted to bring. The, the tenants uh, and his wisdom to a mainstream audience uh, that would be not just for psychotherapy, but would actually be used in business and government and organizations in everyday life uh, as more of a testimony to how his his philosophy applied to health in a broader sense. It wasn't just psychotherapy and it wasn't just about mental health. And uh, he grabbed my arm and he said, Alex, yours is the book that needs to be written. And um, that was that was a um, that was kind of almost he might as well have given me a tattoo on my soul when he said that. Hello, this is Dr. Scott Hoy. That was the voice of Alex Patakos. Alex is my guest today on the Chicago Psychology Podcast. Alex is a founder of the Global Meaning Institute, a think tank with bases in Canada, Greece, and the United States. He is the co-author with Elaine Dudin of two award-winning international best-selling books on the human quest for meaning, Prisoners of Our Thoughts, and The Opa Way, Finding Joy and Meaning in Everyday Life and Work. Alex discusses his own search for meaning throughout his lifespan, working in mental health systems in the Chicago area in the 1970s and 80s, and branching out into corporate public policy, and governmental consulting. His quest led him to a meeting with Viktor Frankl, the founder of Logotherapy, a meeting which changed his life. Please join me for this lively, down-to-earth discussion about meaning-making and how to live life with more passion. Just a side note, Alex mentions divergent thinking quite a bit in this discussion. That's because he's done his research on me and knows that I've done a lot of research on creativity and I practice it a lot and I work with clients a lot to get through stumbling blocks to creativity. So to avoid any confusion, just substitute the word creativity whenever he mentions divergent thinking. Because if there's anything that Alex is, he is certainly creative. And now, here's the interview. Maybe what we could do is uh, we, could, we could narrow down, before we actually start, uh, narrow down an introduction. So how would you like me to introduce you? Um, well, the, uh, I, I, just, just as kind of background here, I have listened to a few of your podcasts 
including your including your inaugural one. So I probably know more about you and Kyle than you know of me. <laughs> so, oh, anyway, sneaking so in there, very, sneaking in. No, there. it was very interesting. No, there are a lot of commonalities, so that was very good. Cool. Um, basically, uh, it's it, it's it's pretty eclectic. I mean, I know both of you also have interesting. Uh, background. So uh, you've kind of zigged and zagged uh, much probably the way I have as well. Uh, but primarily my background is uh, I'm not a psychotherapist. Uh, I'm not a counselor. Um, <clears throat> this is something probably I was involved in in the mental health uh, world many, many years ago, um, both in the military and then when I got out of the military in the Chicagoland area. Um, and so I've had, I have a mental health counseling background from many, many, I mean, now decades ago. And I became immersed in the politics of mental health. And that took me away. So that took me away from uh, the actual service delivery. And I got involved in studying um, human services policy and administration and got involved with governments and blah, 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 blah. And I I can get into that a little bit. And then it was because of that background um, and doing advising with um, state, federal, even local governments and so forth, um, I became really intrigued in in the innovation arena of how do you innovate in human services and so forth and got involved in that. And then the innovation thing took me to to teaching uh, public policy and public management and I taught an innovation course and so forth. So I became really more of a, of an advocate for uh, changing not just the mental health system or non-system, but human services more broadly defined and the integration of human services. And that became a major thrust in my work. <clears throat> and then it was from there that I got really immersed in how to innovate. And the innovation stuff initially was cognitive. And then it moved me into more of a spiritual realm because it wasn't about just innovation for innovation's sake. It was more about why are we doing what we do? And that really threw me into the existential world and brought me together with Viktor Frankl. And really the, the, the more recent history is really about my, I call it my ministry of meaning and how do you share meaning? You know, so that's, so that's really, so I've, I've been affectionately nicknamed at conferences, giving keynotes and lectures, Dr. Meaning, because I've always been kind of the advocate for that. Uh, I'm blessed to stand on the shoulders of Viktor Frankl. Uh, so I did listen to your work with my friend Alex um, uh, Beasley, and then um, that's become kind of a major thrust of my research, speaking, lecturing, writing, publishing, and so forth, and how to advance not just Viktor Frankl's life and legacy, but really creating some new paradigms on how we can find deeper meaning in life, work, and society. And so that and I kind of helped create a discipline with my co-conspirator in this, is a co-author and my wife. Uh, who's also an author. Um, And so we've been doing that together, really kind of going literally around the world, trying to advance uh, societies and humanities cry for meaning. How do you, how do you respond to that? And as we all know, you know, the world of politics has become more polarized and there's so many different issues that go way beyond, you know, individual concerns. I mean, it's, there's a lot of collective things that we're involved with right now to try to help create a bit better systems. And so, Anyway, so it's really kind of, that's kind of a, uh, a more than 25 word introduction to my introduction, to my introduction. <laughs> okay. Well, I, yeah. I, there's no need, no need for me to introduce you. And I think yeah. we're, we're just going to continue on from there. That's such a good introduction. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, having listened to that, that's such a rich description of what you've done. And there's so much in there. There's several points that maybe we can unpack in the discussion here. Um, specifically, uh, like looking at your work on, on uh, in, with politics and, and looking at, at broader systemic meaning and how you can implement meaning mm-hmm. in society. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but first and foremost, as a clinical psychologist who's interested in how other clinical psychologists develop, I'm wondering, it, it sounds like you might not have had a logotherapy framework for your work with, with patients in the delivery of psychotherapy uh, earlier on in your career. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it actually is even more, um, it's, prob- it's probably even more tangential to psychotherapy in terms of my path. 
because my path began um, – I've always been interested in mental health services, and, part, and partly the, the, the mental health um, concerns that I've had. Some of them, obviously, are uh, as all of us have, they're relating to our personal lives. You know, people that we've encountered, situations we've encountered in life, and so forth. And the, you know, those were some of the, the catalysts that that kind of got me always interested in the human condition and the, and the plight of the of, of human beings as they face different challenges. But the thing that really kind of kicked things off for me, and I, even though I've never probably referred to logotherapy in my early years because I was not as familiar with it, even though I did read Man's Search for Meaning my first time probably in high school, is that originally I wanted to become a trauma physician and a, and a medical doctor. And that was kind of my passion originally. And when I went into uh, to, to my first year of college, um, you know, I was pre-med. And unfortunately, given my um, my vintage, um, that was the time when the uh, Vietnam War was just starting to uh, to uh, escalate. And so there was a draft at that time. And everybody that I knew, even when I was in my high school, <coughs> high school students was concerned about, OK, is my number coming up? And so at that point in our history, um, we were less concerned about what technology we had. Like today, we have iPhones and iPads. We're more concerned about whether or not we're going to get drafted and what does that mean in terms of our future? Are we even going to have a future? And as it turned out, I ended up volunteering for the draft uh, with a friend of mine um, who, uh, because we thought that if we, we went to an Army recruiting center and we'd, we volunteered to be patriotic Americans, and we were promised that we were going to stay together uh, and go through training together and so forth. As it turned out, um, he went one place, I went another. Eventually, he was killed, and obviously, I'm still here. Oh, wow. So, um, and so, you know, so, but that was my initial uh, entry point into really one of the more formidable challenges that I had to face in my life. And I was at that time, I was uh, I was still a teenager. And so when I got into the Army, one of the things that I ended up doing because of my probably my testing that I had, my IQ, whatever test they had given me, is that I was sent to training at a psychiatric facility in San Antonio, Texas, where most medics and advanced training in the medical fields where they went for training. And I was trained in a, a psychology specialist program, mainly because everybody thought, well, okay, this guy's a smart guy here. Rather than having, he can, he can work in the mental, they call them mental hygiene clinics to help uh, veterans, you know, veterans coming back from Vietnam or, or people who were protesting the war and so forth. So I, I got my initial training at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and uh, which I, you know, basically most of the people there were behavioralists, you know, they were you know, neo-Freudian types and so forth. And that was my thing. Um, and but part of my training ended up taking me to uh, uh, to Europe. This is later. And I'm skipping a couple of other places I went for purposes of making this shorter. And I ended up working with a, a child psychiatrist by the, who was a major at that time. His name was uh, uh, Dr. Alan Jong. Who was Erica Jong's husband at the time? Oh, okay. And, okay. and so Alan was my boss, and so uh, I worked primarily at that point. I was very blessed because I was working in a uh, in a in the headquarters of the United States Army uh, Europe in Heidelberg, Germany, West Germany, we called it then. And I had the blessing of not only working with Dr. Jong with uh, children dependents of uh, of soldiers. Um, which gave me a kind of a special status, but I also worked as a correctional counselor in the stockade in Mannheim, Germany, and so uh, so basically I had a chance to to do a variety of quote unquote counseling with whatever training had been in. Which again, you know, I'm a fish out of water. I'm thinking, hey, I'm still young. I mean, I'm turned twenty, and I'm saying, I'm doing this stuff, and I'm working with, you know, in these kind of crazy circumstances, you know. And but it was eye-opening for me. And it also kind of radicalized me in terms of becoming much more uh, against, you know, the war and that kind of stuff. But that was my entry point. And all of that training, the clinical training then was basically grounded in a lot of, you know, uh, we didn't even call it CBT. We didn't, we didn't call it, you know, I mean, we, I don't even know what we called it. I mean, it was basically, you know, it was, it was basically a Freudian approach to, uh, to, to whatever we were doing with, with GIs, with their wives and their kids and so forth. So when I came out of the military, I ended up uh, going uh, again another 
via first going to the Southwest uh, to uh, to the state of New Mexico, where I did finish finish my undergraduate work. Just to show you how my my degree, uh, and from there I went to graduate school first in Chicago at John Marshall Law School. Okay, and yeah. uh, so so you're, you're in the loop, so you know, yeah, you know, I've, I've got strong ties to Chicago, so, and to yeah, Illinois, sounds so, like it, yeah, and and, uh, and I went to to John Marshall, but because of my military training and experience, uh, I just couldn't. Finish. I went there for two years. And even though John Marshall was fine, I I was so um, uh, I, I didn't have you know we we didn't have PTSD in those days, but you know it was like just in, we, didn't, we didn't even call it battle fatigue, but I just felt like I was so uh, jaded about war and everything else, and it was very difficult for me to sit in classes with people who were training to become ambulance chasers, whereas I was seeing people who were in in, in unbelievable conditions. And going through so much stress and so much, you know, depression, suicide, I mean, everything else. So I, 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 you know, if I could have gone to a law school that was social policy oriented, you know, become Ralph Nader or something like that, I would have done that. <clears throat> but that was not John Marshall at the time. I don't even know today if John Marshall's, uh, you know, uh, changed much in terms of its orientation. Or Just as an aside, uh, I, I, yeah. John Marshall is actually, uh, I believe they're, they they, they and UIC have merged, or it's merged okay. into into UIC. So now, finally, okay. there's an actual state school that people can go to for law in Chicago, rather than uh, in a private school. Okay. So it's which is good, okay. and it's still there. Yeah. It's, it's going to be yeah, probably probably will be more connected to public policy. Yeah. 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 Well, when I was there, it was not. It was. It's probably still in the same location, right? I. Probably, yeah. You know, probably. And you either went to John Marshall or you went to DePaul. And it depends if you want to become a judge. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, Chicago has its own orientation towards politics. And, you know. But anyway, so, so, so I went to John Marshall and uh, I, I quit after two years. But while I was going to John Marshall to kind of give you my Chicago connection, I also took a job uh, because when I was back in New Mexico, I also worked as a journalist for the Albuquerque Journal, uh, the newspaper there. And, um, and so when I got to Chicago, I, in order to help support myself, in addition to the GI Bill, I worked for a company called Paddock Publications, which published the Arlington Heights Herald, all the Herald newspapers. Ah, Are you familiar with the Herald? Is that still in existence? I think it's floating around somewhere. Yes. Anyway, anyway, there's a whole bunch of them. There was Tinley Park, Herald. There was, you know, there was, they were all over the place. And, um, so I was working uh, for the Herald and, I ended up doing a story about uh, some uh, a walkout, a strike of mental health employees at Tinley Park. Ah, um, okay. And all right, and I ended up getting hired by uh, I, people. Asked me, you worked in uh, in mental health when you were in the army. Why don't you work for the State Department of Mental Health? So I ended up getting a job uh, with the state. So I I quit law school. Uh, stopping uh, doing my writing for for Paddock, and I ended up working for the department at that time. It was called the Department of Mental Illinois Department of Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities, which I'm not sure if they still use that title. And uh, I ended up working at a couple different places. Again, I don't even know if these facilities still exist. Uh, I think Tinley Park closed, right? Um, I'm not sure. I worked at John Madden. I worked at Chicago Reed. Um, you know, I worked with the Woodlawn Organization. I was when I was at Tinley Park, I was uh, administrator of social services and mental health care uh, for the south side of Chicago, um, uh, basically from uh, 12th Street down to I think 72nd, from the Dan Ryan over to the lake. So I'll give you an idea of my of the scope. And again, eye-opening stuff, right? And I'm working in it. But you know, as as it should as it turned out. Uh, I wasn't a good fit for the Department of Mental Health because of my so-called um, divergent thinking. And, um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm all up... about divergent thinking. <laughs> I like creativity. Yeah. So, but but uh, institutions and, and, don't yeah. like that sometimes. Yeah, they don't like that. I understand. And that. It is so. Ha- it just so happened that I ended up getting involved. And I didn't. I didn't even know if he's still around. I don't know if you heard of a guy named Walter Jacobson. I have he not. Was, uh, but okay, he worked for CBS in Chicago, WBBM TV. Okay. He, he and Bill Curtis were newscasters in Chicago for years. And I think Bill Curtis, Bill Curtis, Walter Jacobson was a real incredible journalist, investigative journalist. And I ended up doing a story for the department. I ended up basically doing, and I actually wrote this in another book, a story, uh, an article was entitled Soldier Field. And basically what happened was I was sitting in 
uh, at Tinley Park in the mental health center with about 20 patients and, uh, and all male patients at the time. And they're watching a football game. And this was, again, this is years ago. All right. This is like in, a, in the mid 1970s. And uh, there was a, a blackout of the NFL the, 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 at the time. And, and they had all these empty seats. Uh, that uh, uh, they couldn't fill at Soldier Field. And we're sitting around and watching the Chicago Bears playing. And one of the patients, who, a lifelong Chicago resident, lived on the south side. He's at Tinley Park. He's an inpatient. I'm working with him and these other 20 people. He ends up saying, you know, God, you know, I wish I could do it. I've never been to Soldier Field. And he lived on the south side. And I go, you mean you guys have never been to Soldier Field? So I ended up calling the Chicago Bears office, and I asked if I could bring a group of uh, – people from Tiddley Park uh, to a game and fill some of the empty seats. Well, they thought I was the mental patient. I mean, they thought I was nuts. And uh, But anyway, so Walter Jacobson, so Walter Jacobson, I you know, ended up, uh, I connected with him somehow. He heard about my request. And so he did a big uh, uh, story on my attempt, at sh- and they showed it on, 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 on the CBS channel in Chicago. They have these mental patients sitting around watching TV, you know, and they're there, and, uh, and, and uh, they say, you know, you know uh, go. and then they showed a, s- a shot of uh, people cheering at a Soldier Field football game with the Chicago Bears, and they said, you know, going to a game at Soldier Field is exciting, unless you're a mental patient. All right. Anyway, so this expose goes out. It was a longer, it was a long piece, and then it got written up in the papers and everything else. Well, the Chicago Bears never relented. They, the organization, still would not give us seats. And Walter Jacobson got in all kinds of trouble with people, you know, criticizing him and everything else. And he shouldn't have got involved, but but he but he had a lot of courage. As it turns out, a lot of the Chicago Bear uh, ticket, season ticket holders donated their seats. Uh, to us. And so we, so I took a group of about, you know, at that time it was about 15 patients, most of whom were um, um, in some way, they were schizophrenic or this or that, but, you know, none of them were dangerous. You know, this is the thing, but the, one of the unfortunate things about people's views of mental illness and mental health. And we went to the game. We had a great time. Nobody, you know, nobody attacked anybody. Nobody did. You know, the patients loved it. They came back. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. So that was one of the things. But anyway, the problem with that was is that I got to be in trouble with the superintendent uh, of the of Tenley Park. And he said, you know, and so one day I end up meeting this professor, a political science professor, who's a consultant to the Department of Mental Health. And he said, Alex, can, can we have lunch? And I said, sure, let's go have lunch. So we sit down and have lunch. And he goes, uh, Alex, have you ever thought about becoming a professor? And I said, no. And he said, well, your time at the Department of Mental Health is limited. As a matter of fact, you're going to get fired. You know, so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what, so why don't you come yeah. and why don't you continue your graduate studies and, and study the politics of mental health and human services and become a professor and, and a consultant advisor? So I ended up doing that. And so that became my next path. And so I ended up going and I did my rest, rest of my graduate studies to my doctoral work in DeKalb in Northern Illinois, which you know, you know where that is. I knew you would. Anyway, which I'm proud. Anyway, so that was, so that became kind of the next stage of my life. And so it was at that point that I became involved with a lot of people. We talked about the right to treatment. I started getting involved in mental health policy uh, discussions, presentations at conferences, doing research. Then I started integrating the mental health services uh, passion I had with other human services, employment and training, housing, public assistance, social services. And I wrote a, a co-authored a seminal monograph called Dimensions of Services Integration for, at that time, it was the U.S. Department of Health, Education and Welfare um, with uh, my mentor uh, and now colleague and friend, uh, Robert Agronoff, who was, uh, was assistant dean at Indiana University. He was at Northern he went over to Indiana and Bloomington, so I ended up going back and forth. When I was doing my doctorate between DeKalb and Bloomington, um, and so uh, anyway, so Bob and I wrote Dimensions of Services Integration, which was published in 1980, uh, became the major piece for much of the uh, social policy work that was that came under not only uh, uh, during the last end of the Carter years, uh, during the Reagan administration, and even further into. Uh, 
uh, into, into the later years after post, post-Reagan era, where they were looking at how to integrate and coordinate human services across functions and areas like that. And so that that was that, that was kind of the next phase of my uh, my passion, looking at mental health in a broader human services context, um, because there wasn't it wasn't enough. I mean, just giving people drugs or even giving them you know psychotherapy or, or you know some ther- therapeutic intervention wasn't enough. And so uh, we needed to go beyond that. And you know, they needed housing, they needed education, training, uh, family assistance. I mean, there was social services, public assistance. And, uh, and there was uh, actually, and I know I'm, I'm kind of rambling here, but while I was uh, in, in graduate school, I had a, a professor who, be, who became a, another uh, mentor of sorts by the name of Walter Fisher. Walter was, uh, um, he was a psycho- clinical psychologist. He wrote a book that I still have. My library it was published like in 1975, and you'll love the title of it because it probably hasn't changed much since uh, when he published it. The title is Power, Greed, and Stupidity in the Mental Health Racket. And uh, Walter Fisher uh, was uh, was one of the superintendents within the Department of Mental Health. Uh, he's, he's passed now. But uh, he, he had a major influence in my thinking about, you know, we really need to look at mental health in a human services context rather than just as something that, you know, you, know, you, you we just, other, just people kind of rotating through the, revolving doors of the system. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to, in mental health to be there when the, you know, the Community Mental Health Centers Act came, came to being and deinstitutionalization became a big issue of how do you get people and, you know, well, yeah, into the I communities. Mean, you, you know, that like, yeah, just to kind of fill in uh, a, a, for the lay folks in the audience, the institutionalization came uh, when they shut down with, I think it was the Mental Retardation and Community Mental Health Act of 1962 yeah. that that that, that mm-hmm. Kennedy signed into law, and and that was, of course, the Great Society idea of Johnson, and then later Nixon started to gut that, and Carter, yeah. Rosalind, and Jimmy Carter uh, uh, mm-hmm. had more uh, push into creating that infrastructure of community mental health and deinstitutionalization. And then the policy, again, was gutted. So in in the Reagan era, uh, a lot Mm -hmm. of them, state mental hospitals were closed, unfortunately, because some folks really benefited from the ones that weren't those so-called snake pits. That's right. Actually, the snake pit, I believe, sorry to interrupt you, but the snake pit, actually, I believe, was built on the model of Elgin State Hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walter Walter Fisher was the assistant superintendent uh, when when the snake pit, the movie – was produced. So, so, I mean, when you think about, you know, like hosing down inpatients and so forth, I mean, the inhumanity, uh, experienced by people was just, was mind boggling. And, but at the same time, the deinstitutionalization movement also created its own host of problems because you, you can't deinstitutionalize things if there's no community support system in place. Well, right. And, and, and most major cities and even, even rural areas are dealing with the backlash of that, uh, defunding of deinstitutionalization. Right. That's right. So anyway, so that, so in, in brief, that kind of brought me to the, almost the, uh, the, the entry point of where I am today, because it went from kind of like a mental health interest, uh, both on a, you know, on a, on a service delivery level to moving into the management and the policy management end of things of how do you integrate human services so that mental health care and the right to mental health services, the right to treatment actually means something. And there's a common th- sub-thread throughout this period, which, again, I said I read uh, Man's Search for Meaning when I was still in high school, is that I've always been passionate about meaning, the search for meaning and the human quest for meaning and how meaning ends up uh, fueling our ambitions and our motivations and how that's that's really, as, as Dr. Franco said, is the primary intrinsic motivation of human beings. It's, so it's, I've always had that Yeah, theory. Yeah, it's kind of, the, it's the kind of uh, main or proto-guiding line to use individual mm-hmm. psychology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so, that, so that became kind of, uh, that, that uh, tr- transformed me personally, but it also I uh, went through a metamorphosis because as I was doing more and more work in government, 
I became more frustrated with the governments I was working with, both as a political science professor, as a professor of public policy and management, and then also as an advisor, as a consultant to governments. It became like I kept on beating my head against bureaucracies, et cetera. And I really started to want to bring more innovation into the public arena. And when I started to, so I was, uh, I'm going to really jump here ahead. Uh, I ended up leaving Illinois and I uh, went to the University of Maine, a main campus in Orono, Maine. And I started teaching a course on, um, on creativity and innovation in public administration and government. And I never forget my you know deans basically saying you know isn't that an oxymoron innovation in government, and um, <laughs> you know and so you know so I was ahead ahead of the time and I was you know trying to bring innovation in. I became a faculty consultant evaluator for a program that was created, established, and still exists at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard called the Innovations in America. It's now called the Innovations in American Government Awards Program. So I went around the country for about three years uh, looking for innovations in government and highlighting them. It is an awards program. The Ford Foundation funded that. Uh, and then I left uh, New England and I went out to, uh, to Idaho, to uh, Boise, Idaho, and I became the director of the graduate program in public administration at Boise State University. And um, did my due diligence there and so forth. And again, tried to bring innovation into the public arena. Was still frustrated with that. There's a lot of personal things that I had to deal with at, at that period, not during that period. And I, in, in terms of innovation, couldn't find a lot of things related to publications about government uh, doing innovative things the way I wanted to. So I started studying innovation in business. And so that moved me into working with companies and on looking at how they innovated. And so I did that for you know a number of years, innovation, because I was trying to bring the innovations that were in the corporate sector back into government. And it was during the time that I was doing my innovation, creative innovation work, that I realized, again, that it wasn't enough to be creative. It wasn't enough to, do, to innovate if you weren't innovating with purpose, if you weren't innovating with meaning. So that brought me back to the meaning work. And it brought me into the whole passion that I now have created in my life and inspired myself to, to bring, uh, to raise the human spirit, not just in personal, our everyday lives, but in our, in our work lives. And so the human spirit became another driver that brought me back to Viktor Frankl because logotherapy ultimately comes back to, it's a, it's a spiritually driven for philosophy and, and school of psychotherapy, which is one of the things, which is really one of the things that. Uh, resonated with me, um, resonated Victor Frankl's on a personal level with me as well as intellectually, um, because he understood the deeper meaning of the Greek word logos, which is also the root word of the word dialogue, that it has spiritual roots. And so I wrote a number of things about dialogue and and spirituality at work, and I became involved in a nonprofit organization to, to help raise human consciousness about about. Uh, the human spirit and how you can elevate people's uh, lives and inspire them to do and to live more fulfilled lives, which again is all back to meaning. And so that all kind of converged uh, and brought my, my innovation, uh, passion and interest in human services and in government to the focus that it is now, which is really trying to do this and embark on this ministry of meaning that I call it so that I can help bring people in all walks of lives, uh, life at, and of all stages of life to bring and to live more meaningful lives and to do more meaningful work. Yeah. Well, I, Sorry, you know. I, yeah, I'm curious, like uh, you met Viktor Frankl. How did you meet Viktor yes. Frankl? That's, that's, that would be uh, of interest. I think, well, yeah, it's, it, I mean, yeah. And why me? You know? <laughs> it's like, I'm looking at, uh, why no, not you? I mean, I look yeah. at it. You know, yeah, no, but it, it was an interesting thing because, like, here I am. I'm I'm doing this stuff. I'm interested in in on a variety of different things, but particularly focused on systemic change, public policy, uh, public management, uh, business administration, all these areas. I'm not in. I wasn't a local therapist. I'm not somebody who's totally. But you know, basically, I started in, in to uh, communicate. Actually, it's a very interesting story. Um, the first uh, uh, English version, I think, of, uh, of Man's Search for Meaning was published in Boston by a publisher, Beacon Press. And I remember seeing, I, I probably have almost every 
book, including many in German and, and other languages, including Greek, um, uh, Victor Frankl's writings. And I remember getting a, a, a later ver- edition of Man's Search for Meaning, and I'm going through it and everything else, and I noticed that um, there were some things in there that suggested, and this is after I thought that Dr. Frankl had already passed, that he was still alive. So I contacted the publisher, Beacon Press, to, to ask, you know, is, is, is Dr. Frankl still alive? And and so the person on the other on the phone at Beacon Press said, "Oh, I'm sorry, no, I'm not." Uh, and so I was, you know, sad, but you know, I figured, okay, well, there it goes. Anyway, so about an hour later, I get a phone call from Beacon Press, and a person's really apologetic. It was one of the one of the editors, whatever, said, "You know, uh, Dr. Patakis, I'm really sorry that you know that that you know, whoever told you that Dr. Franco was not alive is, is incorrect. He is alive." And, and I guess they assumed that I was a family of my relative. So anyway, so I ended up, uh, you know, basically learning that he was still, you know, living in Vienna. And I uh, sent, you know, some very primitive emails at this time. And we're not talking, we're not where we are today. We didn't have FaceTime. We don't have, you know, we didn't have the World Wide Web and everything else. I sent a very primitive uh, emails to uh, a contact who turned out to be, become a friend, a member of the Frankel family, who actually is Alex, your guest. Ah, okay, okay. Franz. And so I started communicating with Franz. And at the very, at that time, I was also president of a nonprofit organization uh, that I, that I kind of referred to that focused on how to elevate the human spirit at work. And that, that group that I was president of was having a uh, conference in, uh, in Switzerland. And so, uh, in, in Co, Switzerland, uh, actually Montreux. Um, and uh, Co is in Montreux, it's right near the lake there, and it's a beautiful, there's a beautiful conference center, and I was gonna go to that conference center. So I said, well, I'm gonna go there. Why not see if I can go meet with Dr. Frankel in Vienna? It's not that far, it's not that, you know. So I ended up uh, contacting Franz and said, I'd like to set up a meeting and uh, uh, see if, if I can get together with Dr. Frankel. I wanna share with him some ideas I have about bringing logotherapy and logo theory to the mainstream. So that's how it started. And so I, you know, set the meeting up, uh, it, you know, honored that he agreed to meet with me. I remember getting to Vienna, I go to the hotel, I'm in the, the hotel, not too, you know, not too, too far from his flat. Uh, the, the, the morning of the meeting, I was going to introduce him to this book I wanted to work on. Uh, I call him up in the morning and I never forget Dr. Frankel being so gracious when I called because he said, and this is kind of an something amazing to me. He, he said, you know, thank you so much for calling me this morning before coming over to the, for our meeting. I says, uh, uh, I'm not used to that because so many people, when they come to Vienna, they just, you know, ring his doorbell. He could be in the middle of dinner. Uh, they just think he's on the Sigmund Freud tour, uh, you know, and here you are, you know, you're so gracious yourself, uh, but, you know, and he, and he, you know, he said, you know, I don't want to say that he said that unlike most Americans who are just kind of in your face, but he did, you know, kind of suggest that that he was as an American coming to Vienna that I was very much of a gentleman, and um, and he really appreciated the fact that I double checked that he was available still for that meeting, so that's how we went. So we so I met uh, met with him at his house, met his his, his wonderful uh, wife Ellie, and and uh, we just had you know, sitting at his office, and I explained to him what I wanted to do uh, in terms of writing, uh, and I wanted to bring the, the tenants uh, and his wisdom to a mainstream audience uh, that would be not just for psychotherapy, but would actually be used in business and government and organizations in everyday life uh, as more of a testimony to how his, his philosophy applied to health in a broader sense. It wasn't just psychotherapy and it wasn't just about mental health. And uh, he grabbed my arm and he said, "Alex, he goes, this is the book that needs to be written." And oh, um, that okay. was that was a you know, that was kind of almost he might as well have given me a tattoo on my soul when he said that. Mm. But that was you know, that was a, a turning point for me. And so I was obviously at that moment that became a uh, uh, an authentic commitment. And I'm saying this uh, truly is an authentic commitment to a meaningful value and a meaningful goal i.e. the will to meaning, that I was, in fact, going to finish this book. And uh, so that book became uh, what is entitled Prisoners of Our Thoughts, is the main title, and Viktor Frankl's Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work is a subtitle. 
Uh, it's in it's available um, in over 20 languages and all kinds of formats. Um, it's now in a third revised and expanded edition that I co-authored with my wife Elaine Dundon. So the book is that much better now uh, than the first two editions. Um, it's actually next week being uh, showcased in Beijing at the Beijing International Book Fair. Wonderful. Uh, the Chinese, uh, newly released Chinese edition. And uh, we've gone, Elaine and I have gone all over the, literally all over the planet now, uh, sharing the message in that book. And then we've uh, extended beyond that with uh, another book on the search for meaning that uh, is inspired by uh, Greek philosophy, mythology, and culture. And it's called The Opa Way. The Opa way, the Greek word Opa, and you should definitely know the word Opa living in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. you have, oh, you yeah. know, I'm sure you've been to Greek Town, oh, uh, which has yeah. changed a lot since uh, I used to hang out there. It has, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the Opa way is was my way of, and again, Elaine and I spent seven years traveling across Greece to come up with a philosophy that was grounded in the and not just the ancient Greek way, but also mythology and Greek culture prior to, during, and now uh, somewhat subsequent to the Greek crisis, the financial crisis and the refugee crisis. But we wanted to do something that would uh, extend Dr. Frankel's work because he was also a, a good friend of Greece. And obviously a lot of his work uh, in, in, in developing logotherapy is grounded in Greek philosophy and, and the Socratic method and so forth, the, the, the word logos. And... Um, so we so we're kind of looked at the Oprah way as as one of our contributions to extending the human quest for meaning work that he had started, um, and uh, and build on that. And then we took the Opa concept and philosophy and we incorporated it. What Elaine and I did in the new third edition of Prisoners of Our Thoughts. So there's actually four new chapters. There's three new chapters that integrate OPNA, which uh, is an acronym. It's not only a, an ancient Greek word, but it's an acronym that we developed in a formula for finding meaning that's that's based on the three elements. O is stands for connect with others, uh, authentically meaningful with others. Others is the O. P is engage with deeper purpose. And A is embrace life, all of life with attitude, O, P, and A, others purpose attitude. So others purpose attitude became our empirical formula, which we've uh, uh, developed. We actually have assessment tools and so forth. And we've taken the OPA message as another way of extending and introducing people to Dr. Frankel's work, as well as our our, our contributions to extend it uh, around the world. And that's what we that's part we're doing. And then that subsequently, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. Sorry, you want to interrupt me? Please do. Uh, we've okay. now developed the a, a we've developed. You can tell, you know, I'm uh, I'm an academic, so I could instead of talking on a podcast for X minutes, I could talk for 16 weeks straight. <laughs> well, you're, you're you're an academic, but you're also an impassioned person. So, yeah, help the spirit. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Go ahead. No, I was going to say you're, you're an academic, but you're also very yeah. impassioned about what you're doing, which may or may not come across uh, as academic within an academic setting. <laughs> uh, if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. See, you got the message. Right? Yes. Yeah. You get that? Okay, you can see that. Okay, that's, that's, another, that's another way of looking at divergent thinking. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, but being divergent, what we've done, though, is we've taken the, the concepts within logotherapy, local theory, our concept within the OPA uh, paradigm that we developed, and we've now incorporated that into this discipline that we call meaningology, the study and practice of uh, meaning in 
uh, life, work, and society. And so our next books are about really explicitly, Meteorology introduced in the third edition of, of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, but we're now working on uh, new work uh, to be published that's, that really advances the study of meniology, which is really our alternative, if you will, to what Martin Seligman has done with developing positive psychology. Uh, we really we want to do something that isn't, and I know that you know I have a I have a friend and colleague Paul Wong who you may know who's uh, been espousing what he calls positive psychology 2.0 PPT 2.0, uh, and I know positive psychology's uh, got its own branding and its own identity through obviously the the platform that uh, Seligman had developed at the University of Pennsylvania. But uh, I think that we wanted to go beyond positive psychology as a name because, as you well know, and and I know Paul Wong would say the same thing, that's why he developed positive psychology 2.0 as as an alternative, is that not all of life has its ups. I mean, there are also downs. There's also moments of sorrow, suffering, uh, you know, trauma and so forth. And so, you know, the original notions that were articulated under the banner of, of positive psychology, which Seligman kind of used some of my ancestors. He went specifically to Aristotle and he misinterpreted a Greek concept called evemonia. Evemonia is, is, uh, trans, is based on, the, on how one thinks phonetically. It's now spelled in English E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A, which is uh, they call eudaimonia, which technically in Greek it's pronounced evemonia, um, but it was not just about happiness. And evemonia, and we wrote about evemonia in the Opa Way, has a much richer, much deeper uh, sense of inner and outer prosperity that is not something that comes. And so I know Seligman and I know Paul Wong have tried to and many of, many of the followers of positive psychology have gone now into the world of saying, okay, well, we didn't really mean that it's only happiness, that authentic happiness and flourishing and so forth is, is not, you know, it's not just hedonistic happiness. There's authentic happiness, which is deeper. But they already opened up, you know, the, the barn door when they well, started to talk about Aristotle's interpretation and misinterpreted it. I think that there's a richness in European cultural, uh, I mean, Greek philosophy is the beginning of philosophy in, in Europe and probably the beginning of a lot of what we consider kivitas or civilization. And I mm-hmm. think there is, uh, just my little bit of knowledge is there's, there's a richness of, of that European background of philosophy that has uh, enriched what psychology became. It's kind of the womb mm-hmm. out of which psychology uh, was was gestated and born out of in European culture, and mm-hmm. the richness of uh, Koine and other uh, aspects of Greek language, I think that is lacking in the general training of psychotherapy. And that richness, the richness of the understanding of the cultural background of where we, where psychotherapy comes from, is the heritage of Western culture. And I think what what you're you're kind of uh, you're kind of pointing us in that direction. Yeah, I know absolutely, and I think one of the reasons why I've resonated so much uh, with, with Dr. Frankel is his whole spiritual orientation. And I'm not talking about religious. It doesn't mean you know that uh, that he's talking about. And he, he he never really pushed his being an Orthodox Jew on people, whatever. I mean, he was very humanistic in his approach, but he he helped spiritualize psychotherapy. And one of the reasons why that's important to me is that when you look at now, now positive psychology, if you look at the roots of psychology itself. And particularly if you look at the Greek language and the contributions that the Greek language have on how we think today and what we've developed today, that in many cases we have misinterpreted things. And I mean, if, if you think about even what psychology means, it really is about the study of the spirit, the soul. Mm-hmm. And but we've we've changed we've we've kind of we've morphed into other things. We moved into the mind. We moved into I mean, now we're obsessed with neuroscience and cognitive science and so forth, behavioral science. And we're still missing that, that element that drives so much. And so like Elaine and I, in our, in our view of metaphysics, for example, we, we talk a lot in contemporary society about mind-body connections, mind-body-spirit. We reverse that. You know, When we talk about that, we talk about spirit, mind, body, so that it, if the spirit is ill 
um, that has implications emotionally and, and certainly and has physical manifestations. And so mm-hmm. a large part of what Dr. Frank was able to do was elevate the human spirit. And this is how all this stuff, I mean, it's like how I see myself, and I hope that listeners will also see themselves, is that life is like a spiral staircase. And as we go through life, ideally, we don't get stuck on the ground floor. Hopefully, we move up. If we don't have an elevator, we got to climb up those stairs. But as we climb up the stairs and look down, the same person we were when we were incarnated, when we came onto this planet, um, you know, to this life, is still there. We're at a higher level of consciousness, ideally. Sometimes we get knocked down a floor or two. But, you know, the idea is, is that if we can move up, and so part of what I uh, ideally would like listeners to, to, to realize is that all of life has meaning. Every moment has meaning. It's up to us to discover that meaning. And ultimately, if we can leverage that meaning for our own uh, growth and development, that we will move up that staircase and that life actually uh, is, in fact, uh, an ongoing search for meaning. Well, you know, what you're, you're, it's kind of resonating with me for those of you who understand like psychosynthesis. <clears throat> I think it was Robert Asigioli, Asigioli he uh, was an Italian uh, psychoanalyst, probably knew Viktor Frankl. He, he, he knew uh, at some point back in the 20s or 30s. His psychosynthesis has a similar kind of, uh, um, uh, I guess, growth aspect that you're talking about, that kind of quote-unquote spiritual aspect of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quote in, uh, in our books that basically uh, goes like this. It says, you can change without growing, but you can't grow without changing. So many of our clients, many of our relatives, many of our friends, coworkers, you name it, colleagues, you know, they'll change jobs, they'll change relationships, you know, they'll change, uh, you know, uh, where they live. Um, but, you know, 20 years later, they don't appear to have grown and they don't have the insight. And so a large part, and this is where I think Dr. Frankl and I, in the work that we do, why we're so drawn to uh, Socrates and the Socratic method and so forth, is we are constantly trying to look at ways to challenge assumptions, uh, even if it means you know being divergent at times, even if it means that we are following the conventional path and trying to be innovative, you know, trying to look for, you know, taking corrective action and so forth. And that's really part of the job of not in the relationship between a therapist and, you know, his or her client, patient, whatever, however you want to call that, and um, is, is gaining those insights. And, um, and, and that, and that's a, that requires hard work. And many of us still to this day refuse to go there. And as you pointed out, which I totally agree with, I mean, there is a, there is a European um, base of, of, uh, of history, of culture, of tradition that I wish that we could tap into more, uh, more assertively in North America so that we would understand some of the things that, um, that came out of uh, ancient Greece, Rome, Western Europe, and so forth, and learn from that and grow from that. And well, a lot of times we become yeah. very Americans are very myopic. You know, we think the world started, uh, you know, what, some years ago. <laughs> oh, it didn't. <laughs> well, I think that I think that also the the um, the search for meaning in psycho in psychology has kind of pushed us towards Eastern philosophy in in one respect because it's a rich tradition that we you know a lot of intellectuals rejected Europe after World War II because so much uh, I guess kind of. Uh, mm-hmm the nadir point of, of uh, uh, altruism and, and philosophy in Europe kind of you could you could say that that the Nazis were the the negative side of that the shadow side of mm-hmm. that and there was a lot of rejection of European culture and and, and including Christianity and, and other judeo-christian kind of thought processes <laughs> and so everything is turned to the east which I think is a rich mm-hmm. cultural tradition and uh, but it's not something we should necessarily pilfer. I think you should celebrate all cultural traditions and see how they might make sense to you living as a modern human. But yeah. you have to have that interest in history as well. So you're, you yeah. are right. A lot of Americans just kind of think, oh, I'm living here now and, you know, uh, mindfulness is something that I do because that's what people say. It, it works for people to get better. And I've seen, you know, it's like they don't really yeah. look into the rich tradition of it, you know. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and the thing is, when you do do what you just recommended, 
you find that there are, there are universal values out there, that there are cross-cultural connections that are uh, almost mind-blowing. And I'll give you an example, since I'm obviously, you know, um, most passionate about my Greek heritage and Greek philosophy and so forth. But uh, Elaine and I were not long ago on a uh, television show in Toronto. And it's actually a television show that's now on PBS. Um, and it's uh, by a friend um, of, of, of ours who's a celebrity chef in Toronto, but she happens to be, she was born in Athens. She's raised in, in Canada. She's a, Can- a Greek Canadian. And she has uh, a, a an interesting, you could look this up and, and listeners can listen to her. She has a TV show that's now on PBS called Confucius Was a Foodie. And, <laughs> and, and basically she goes around, she spends time comparing, not just because Confucius had a, a passion for food, but also his philosophy and then comparing that to other cultures and other you know, ways and walks of life. And so Elaine and I were on her show and there's a segment you can actually uh, uh, see in which we were sitting in a studio in her kitchen and, we're, and we were comparing not just food that was Greek versus food that was Chinese, but also we were comparing the philosophy of Confucius with the philosophy of many of the Greek, ancient Greek philosophers, and, it's, and particularly the pre-Socratics who were you know, contemporaries of Confucius. And it's amazing the commonalities in the way, and even though they had never met, but some of the, the principles, some of the philosophical insights were so right on and so familiar. It was almost as if the Chinese were Greeks and the Greeks were Chinese. I mean, they, like they, they, you know, and there is some evidence that there might've been some travels across, uh, you know, we don't know who came first Did China go to Greece first or did Greece go, you know, go to China, to China. But, and I think that's one of the things that's fascinating to us is not only because of that growth, the richness of that cross cultural insight that we gain, um, but also because that's now led a, a stronger connection between China and Greece to this day. I mean, you know, not because the, the Chinese not only have an interest, a deep interest in education, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting a plug in here because our book is going to be at the Beijing uh, International Book Fair next week. So this, maybe this is what it, <laughs> but they have it. They, but they have it. You know, I mean, I didn't mean to, but it came out that way. Uh, but what's really interesting is that the Chinese now are more frequent tourists in Greece. And part of the reason is because they have a, a tradition and a pride in their culture, their traditions, their philosophy, you know, going back to Confucius, Lao Tzu, etc. And they have had the same feeling, this, this respect for the antiquities in Greece, the Greek philosophy, the Greek culture and tradition. And I think if more Americans, more Canadians would, first of all, travel more, you know, get out, get a passport, travel, um, that would be helpful, but also be be more understanding of how these other cultures, because th- that's really the mission of meaningology. That's the mission of what Elaine and what I think, you know, the kind of psychotherapists that you represent uh, are. You're really trying to bring people to a higher level of consciousness, gain greater insight, and be able to collaborate and cooperate together rather than fight. I mean, at, at what point, you know, I mean, I've already been gabbing on here for a long time with you, but starting out back in the days of Vietnam War, I, I tell you, after that ended, that period of my life ended, I thought that by the time we reached the 21st century, that we'd be living like the Jetsons. I would have no... <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. Okay, if, if people are old enough to know what the Jetsons are, it was a cartoon program, but they were living in peace and they were using technology for the betterment of society and so forth. And instead, in many ways, we've regressed. You know, we, we have more polarization, we have more uh, uh, infighting and fighting between cultures and, and disrespect and, and uh, dishonesty and uh, lack of trust. And it's like, at what point are we going to raise our consciousness to the level that humanity represents Humanity. Yeah. Well, this sounds like <laughs> you know I mean? this sounds like so, the work that that you're doing with the Global Meaning Institute. Institute, yes. Yeah. And well, tell us a little well, bit about it. that. Yeah. 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 Well, that was that was that, that was something that uh, we started. That we're very blessed because, in addition uh, to being, uh, I'm, I'm actually talking to you from uh, Canada. I'm in Niagara on the Lake, Ontario, which is right across the river from Buffalo, New York. I have. There. I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. Okay. Do you yeah. do you like it? I do. It's a beautiful area. Okay, I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting a plug in for Niagara on the Lake. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we also uh, we moved here uh, about two years ago from another place you probably, hopefully, have been to Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've not, and, but I uh, wish you've been to. to Santa Fe. Okay. Not yet. Okay, but. Santa Fe is okay. So Santa Fe is a beautiful, creative city. Niagara on the Lake is a beautiful, creative town, and then we also uh, have a second home in. Um, I know this sounds, this sounds like we, I'm arrogant, 
but I'm not. We're very downsized, believe it or not. We just love experiences. But we spend uh, about uh, three, four months a year now in Greece in a, in a beautiful town, which is really our another hometown for us, like Niagara and Lake and like Santa Fe, a uh, town called Vethino, Crete, the Crete, uh, the island of Crete in Greece. And, um, and so based on those three kind of uh, points on the map, which kind of form a triangle, we've been developing this idea of being able to have work and spread our message in Europe from our Retino, Crete, uh, Greece uh, uh, base in North America, now from Niagara on the lake. And then uh, like next month, I'll be back in Santa Fe working with a client's uh, group uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, so, but we wanted to have places that were inspirational, that were creative, that were, you know, kind of, I don't know, not just retreat centers, uh, but places that actually inspired people to beauty, to health, to wellness, and so forth. And Santa Fe, obviously in the U.S., is one of those kinds of places. Niagara on the Lake is certainly a place like that in Canada. And uh, that, you know, Crete is another place like that in the, in the Mediterranean. And so the so basically what we've done with the Global Meeting Institute is that we hold, uh, you know, uh, we do lectures, workshops, seminars, retreats. Uh, uh, our writing is under that. Both Elaine and I are regular contributors to Psychology Today. So if any listener wants to see more about what we're doing, uh, they just look uh, my name up uh, on psychologytoday.com. And you can see I write a, uh, a column uh, called The Meaningful Life. Um, and then Elaine has one on meaning as well, uh, separately. And then um, and then I also write for a, a government uh, public sector uh, online news uh, outlets uh, to, to talk about meaning in government. So I continue that phase. And then we've done research on meaning. We've done uh, not just with our secondary research uh, uh, doing you know bibliographic and so forth, but we do ethnographic research. We've, we've developed uh, three assessment tools on meaning in life, meaning at work, and meaning among uh, groups, teams, and organizations uh, to assess using the OPA formula, OP&A, uh, to determine uh, at what level, even though we don't want to give a golf score or you know a score to meaning, uh, part of the reason we do it is that people like, particularly people in the business and uh, organizational worlds, like some sort of scorecard. Am I any better off? You know, where is my meaning maybe less uh, than in other places? Uh, to what extent am I connecting with other people? To what extent do I am engaging with deeper purpose? And to what extent? Uh, is my attitude something that's embracing life, mm-hmm. all of life? Um, and do I have a bad attitude? Or, you know, I mean, how's that impacting my my search for meaning? So we still do the the empirical research and, and the writing on that on that in that realm, uh, mainly to uh, to give people, uh, you know, some sort of a, a scorecard. But obviously, our work is much deeper than that, much more humanistic, much more spiritual, metaphysical. So, uh, but you can find it as an article we wrote for those are the, the psychologists out there. Uh, uh, we wrote uh, an article that came out to the end of 2017 for the Journal of Constructivist Psychology oh, okay. uh, called, Dis- called Discovering Meaning Through the Lens of Work. You can find that online. Okay. Um, and that'll give you an idea of what we've been doing at uh, the Global Meaning Institute as well. So, Well, uh, feel free to shoot me some uh, links to anything. Obviously, I have the the basic links for for yours and Elaine's uh, work so that we can include them in the the show notes. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap up. Uh, Do you have anything else you'd like to declare uh, before we we sign off here, Alex? Well, no, I mean, the the biggest thing is that I I hope that everybody who is doing – psychology work, whether you're doing the work as a service provider or as a recipient of services, as a patient, as a client, that you embrace the OPA way, this 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 concept of really seeing yourself in the context of others' purpose attitude. To what extent this, this would be kind of like my last message, which will you know be elaborated on as we continue to develop uh, meaningology and so forth. But if they follow through with this podcast, I'd like them to really feel about you know to what extent do they see their 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 relationships being meaningful? To what extent do they see their purpose? Are they engaging with a deeper purpose, or is it? I mean, is, obviously we all have purposes, but what is your purpose? Not just for getting up in the morning and saying, "Well, I got to go and." Get a cup of coffee. That's a purpose. Uh, but and to what extent do you see yourself really engaging with a deeper purpose? Are you making a difference? Uh, do you feel that you're making a difference? Uh, and then uh, assess your own attitude, OP&A. I mean, to what extent are you uh, working against yourself, as uh, Dr. Frankl used to term paradoxical intention? 
many times our our attitudes uh, are in the way of our own fulfillment, our own sense of meaning. And uh, so I'm hoping that that kind of construct that I introduced today will help listeners uh, maybe apply. And you can apply them in any way, whether you're again you're a therapist, psychologist, whether you're a patient, whether you're just somebody you know who's just listening in because you just like podcasts, um, which by the way have their own ideally purpose. I think what you're trying to do here with uh, the Chicago uh, Psychology Podcast is helping people engage with deeper purpose. It's certainly helping people connect meaningfully with others. Uh, and um, I hope that our, our interview today was uh, was enlightening enough and of high enough of an attitude, positive attitude, that people will walk away feeling good. Awesome. Well, I certainly okay. I certainly am going to walk away feeling good. I, I had a, a great uh, a, a great talk with you, and uh, good, it was good. awesome Same hearing here. about all these things. So you're welcome back anytime, Alex. If anything, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, if you feel like you need to to uh, make a plug or just just more so uh, talk about an idea that you're impassioned that you're trying to get out there, please give us a call. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I was really astounded at the energy that Alex exudes. His inspiration to continue helping people from around the globe pursue meaning in all walks of their lives is really inspirational. Won't you stop by iTunes or your favorite streaming service and give us a great review? It helps us to reach more people by ranking us higher. Your little contribution can greatly help our contribution. All material is copyright 2019, the Chicago Psychology Podcast. This podcast is for entertainment and informative purposes only. If you need a mental health professional, please seek one out. Music is provided by the band Serenati. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.